ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. This is Roger Ebert watching Citizen Kane with you. In 1939, Orson Welles, a child prodigy who had become a radio and theater star in New York, got one of the most amazing contracts ever offered by Hollywood, complete control over a motion picture to be made at RKO Radio Pictures. He would be able to write it, direct it, produce it, star in it, have the final cut. It would be released exactly as he wanted it to be released. And Never before in Hollywood history had anyone since the silent days had quite so much control. Certainly somebody like Charlie Chaplin or D.W. Griffith would have had that kind of control, but not in what was then considered the modern era of sound motion pictures. His movie Citizen Kane was based on So Everyone Thought, the story of William Randolph Hearst, the press baron who uh, owned newspapers, radio stations, wire services, controlled a lot of the information uh, in America, although Wells always denied that, partially because the Hearst Press was so opposed to the film and there was a possibility of lawsuits. He claimed it was also based on people like Samuel Insel, the Chicago utilities tycoon. These opening shots are remarkable in the way that they get closer and closer and closer to Kane's Xanadu, based on William Randolph Hearst's own San Simeon in Northern California, and notice how the window, the one illuminated window there, was always in the same place on the screen, just to the right of center, in a very strong position as we grow closer and closer past drawings and props and matte drawings that indicate the wealth of uh, entertainments and amusements available to Citizen Kane on the lands of Xanadu. Here we're looking mostly at drawings drawings in the foreground and then the illuminated drawing in the background and closer and closer to the window and finally here an interesting effect in which the light is turned out in the background then it fades in on the reverse shot and we come in and see the reverse of the inside of the room that's a technique that Greg Tolan the cinematographer is going to use throughout the film taking down the lights first in the background, then in the foreground, then fading in the lights in the background, and then in the foreground to make invisible, almost seamless edits between the takes. Rosebud, Pauline Kael said it was a gimmick, and basically it is. It explains everything, but really it explains nothing, and yet it's one of the most famous words in motion picture history. Some people have fallen in love with the story that Herman Mankiewicz, the co-author with Wells of the screenplay happened to know that Rosebud was William Randolph Hearst's pet name for an intimate part of Marion Davies' anatomy. Davies, the actress who was his mistress for many years at San Simeon. Whether that's true or not, I suppose we'll probably never know. Now this news on the March newsreel is interesting because it introduces a film that is going to be very, very chaotic in its structure. We're going to find the story of Cain told through the eyes of several eyewitnesses who flash back talking about the Cain that they knew and remembered. It's going to be kind of hard sometimes to have a road map for the place that we're at in Cain's uh, life. So what the newsreel does right at the beginning is give us the entire story. So we know where he came from, what happened to him, 
how he ended up. We know it before the story even begins. A private mountain was commissioned and successfully built. 100,000 trees, 20,000 tons of marble are the ingredients of Xanadu's mountain. Wells turned the editing of this newsreel over to the newsreel department at RKO, professionals who made newsreels like this. You notice he's using all kinds of stock footage, and one of the in-jokes here is that none of the shots of Xanadu really match. We seem to be looking at the exteriors of many different buildings. We don't have just one building that we're seeing from different angles, but there are different architectural styles, different countries, obviously different periods. And then all of this footage was just taken out of the RKO library, the animals, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. And the voice, the authoritative, deep, uh, march of time narrative voice is by William Allen, who appears in the picture as the meekest of characters, Mr. Thompson, the inquiring reporter. But here, here he sounds very deep and very authoritative. And of course, most of the actors in this movie came with Wells from New York, uh, where they worked with him on the radio, on his uh, Mercury Theater of the Air and other productions that he did on the radio. They were skilled radio actors, particularly skillful, doing different kinds of voices, adapting themselves to different characters so that Alan could be the newsreel narrator and then turn out to be a very meek reporter uh, later in the film. There we get our first glimpse of Orson Welles in makeup, and of course the makeup in this movie uh, was one of the key things in Welles' appearance, allowing him to uh, age from about 25 uh, into uh, his 70s as Citizen Kane. The montage of newspapers, of course, a cliche from newsreels. Here, the backward language here, more newsworthy than the names in, the in his own headlines was Kane himself, is kind of a uh, little dig at Time Style, the style in which Time Magazine was written in those days. There was a famous parody of Time Style in in The New Yorker, in which uh, E.B. White wrote, backward ran sentences until reeled the mind. And, of course, people watching this newsreel would be reminded of The March of Time, which was a newsreel produced by Time magazine that played with movies and theaters all over the country at that time. Factories, forests, ocean liners, an empire through which for 50... Here we begin to see... Uh, <laughs> something that happens all through the movie, an epic made almost out of thin air. This was not an enormously high-budget picture, and yet it seems to be. It spans uh, several generations. It's got more than 110 different sets in it. Uh, that's just a drawing there, of course. Uh, uh, footage like this taken right off the shelf from the RKO library, that footage also creating the notion of a political epic without really spending the money on it. And here you notice how one of the actors in the film is integrated uh, into the newsreel. This is footage that was shot just for the newsreel, although it's said that uh, Robert Wise, the editor of the film, actually dragged some of this footage, obviously not this footage, but some of this newsreel footage, on the floor of the studio in order to scratch it so that it would look like grainy old newsreel footage. Now, this is, of course, supposed to be more recent footage, and so it doesn't look like that read to the Committee of Prepared Statement which I have brought with me, and I shall then refuse to answer any further questions. The amazing thing about this film is that it is a first film. Uh, Orson Welles was taken on a tour of the RKO lot and shown the special effects departments, the set building departments, the mat drawing departments, the optical printers, um, and he said it's the finest train set a boy could ever have. Now here you see stock footage of a political rally, and it's interesting how 
Uh, there we cut to a low angle shot of just one actor and because we used the previous footage it looks as if thousands and thousands of extras were used. An American. The American was the first uh, title of Citizen Kane and of course it was a pun on the fact that many of Hearst's papers were called the American, the Chicago American, New York uh, American, Journal American and so forth. Kane urged his country's entry into one war Here's footage that uh, might have been scratched a little bit on the floor by Robert Wise. Here we see more and more intercutting of footage shot for the movie uh, with stock newsreel footage. Uh, this is the same technique that is used in Titanic, where Rose, the survivor of the Titanic, is given a, a little computerized lecture about what happened on the ship early in the film, so that when it really does happen, the audience is very well oriented and knows without having to be told why the ship is going down and how it's going down here. Uh, this technique, telling the whole story in advance before it even starts properly, uh, allows us to be oriented despite the interlocking uh, circles of flashbacks uh, that might otherwise um, cause us a little bit of trouble in, in getting oriented. In a motor accident with their son. There you can see some more scratches on the, on the negative as they cleverly um, make this newsreel look like a real newsreel. And you notice that Susan Alexander is spelled differently in those two cards, um, indicating perhaps um, a certain unreality in her entire stage uh, and opera career. There again, the photograph of Wells and uh, Dorothy Comagore playing uh, Susan Alexander, and then the matte drawing in the background. An extraordinary amount of this film is done with special effects and with matte drawings that make it look as if there's a lot more there than really is there. This is really a special effects picture. Probably has a higher percentage of its shots using some kind of special effect um, as one of the Star Wars movies. It's just that these special effects are invisible. What Wells and Toland, uh, his cinematographer, wanted to do was get what they described as a realistic look. They wanted the movie to look realistic. Oddly enough, because it broke with all of the traditions of editing and photography up until that time, many audiences found that it looked anything but realistic. They were kind of put off by the deep focus photography, uh, the use of long takes, uh, the lack of cutting in order to tell the story, reliance on movement, movement within the scene, and movement of the camera in order to tell us where to look instead of just cutting to something that we were supposed to look at uh, so that we could be more passive viewers. You have to be an active viewer when you look at Citizen Kane. It challenges you. That's a glimpse of Greg Tolan himself uh, playing the man who's interviewing Kane there. Uh, Tolan was considered to be the most innovative and radical cinematographer of his generation in Hollywood a man who loved to experiment, who loved working with a first-time director because his ideas were not set in stone. He actually applied for the job of working on Citizen Kane. It was Tolan who experimented with different kinds of lenses and lighting in order to get the deep focus photography that's very famous in the movie that we'll look at a little bit later. He also came up with the notion of, uh, of ceilings that appeared to be solid when looked at from beneath with light on them but were actually made of cloth so that uh, lights or uh, microphones could be hidden right above them so that you could have a visible ceiling and nevertheless have microphones right there. 
Notice the makeup there by Maurice Siderman, a man who spent hours every day working on Wells to age him. He goes from 25 into his 70s in this movie, and it's very convincing. He looks like an old man there. It's a, uh, a very persuasive performance. Here, using the uh, fence in the foreground, using the moving camera, the handheld camera, the awkward high angle here, we get the sense here of invasion of privacy. We are entering into uh, the uh, secret sanctum of Xanadu, and yet, once again, very low budget. Uh, the shots really show only a man in a wheelchair. Now, that headline up there, of course, is put in with an optical printer over real footage of Times Square. And now... We get to the end of the newsreel, and this is the first footage actually shot for Citizen Kane. It was shot in a screening room at RKO on Gower in Los Angeles, with Tolan experimenting with extremely high levels of bright backlighting in order to put the characters into silhouette. He wanted them, he and Wells, to have the journalists look a little bit anonymous because they're kind of group journalists, the loose uh, time uh, team journalists rather than individuals. Uh, here, just in a second, in the upper left-hand corner, we're going to be able to see, um, there he is, Alan Ladd, Sr., uh, in one of his first movie roles. He became a star a year later with this gun for hire. He has a bit part here. Uh, here, backlighting. We can't really see these people. Mr. Thompson, who will spend the entire movie um, with his back to the camera, interviewing people about Citizen Kane, played by, as I said, William Island, who at the premiere stood up and said, perhaps if I turn my back to you, you would be able to recognize me. What they want to do here, they told the studio they were testing. These were not real uh, scenes uh, because they wanted a chance to experiment with this kind of lighting and this kind of deep focus uh, before they had a lot of studio spies looking over their shoulders. In fact, it was only halfway through the production that Wells found out uh, when John Ford visited the set that his, uh, one of his assistant directors was well-known as an RKO studio spy who sent reports to the front office every day about what was being done and what wasn't being done. It's interesting how diabolical it looks when you have the backlighting here so that the head and hands in that previous shot, and we'll see it again, seem to radiate uh, beams of light as if the person is somehow satanic. I'll get on it right away, Mr. Olson. The uh, dialogue here is setting up the search for Rosebud. What did it mean? Is it a key to a man's life? Rosebud was Kane's dying word. And now, this is really a great shot. This is the first interview. He goes to talk to Susan Alexander Kane. This is not a model. This is a full-size set, and that sign will pull apart as the camera goes through it. You can actually see a little line between the X and the A, and it will pull apart, and then we tilt down into this skylight, and then using a flash of lightning and a dissolve and another flash, uh, we can seal the movement inside to the set and to the high angle and then lower angle shot of Susan Alexander Kane, played by Dorothy Comingore, who was a discovery of Chaplin's, who was cast by Wells, who built her up a great deal in the uh, pre-publicity, and then, uh, almost cruelly, treated her very harshly on the set in order to break down her self-confidence because he wanted her to seem like uh, a very um, uh, weak and timorous and damaged woman. It's one of the great performances in the movie. I thought maybe we could have a talk together. Well, I think again. And here we're going to get the typical shot of William Allen, Mr. Thompson, that we see all through the movie, uh, leaning forward uh, from the front of the frame so that he, like us, is looking into this frame and talking to uh, all of the people who knew Wells as they tried, uh, who knew Kane, I should say, 
as they try to piece together the mystery of this man who was many different men to many different people whose life perhaps never did finally make sense. The background there of the nightclub was a Western set that they found at RKO, and they just used it uh, as if the nightclub uh, had a Western motif. Frequently, Wells did that uh, in the movie, finding locations or sets uh, and borrowing them rather than paying for them. Now, here you see the deep-focus photography, everything from the foreground to the background in focus, the foreground uh, backlit to give us this effective silhouette, and uh, all the way in the background, the actress, Dorothy Gore, And Greg uh, Toland used uh, double arc lamps uh, to put all that light in the background because the further you are away from the camera, the more light there must be on you in order for you to show up. It takes less light in the foreground than in the background. And so he used big lamps that were used for Technicolor because Technicolor needs a whole lot of light, more light than black and white. But he used the double arc lamps um, in this black and white picture in order to get more light into the background. And he was able to control them almost like spotlights, as Pauline Kale says, so that he could focus light there on Susan Alexander in the background without it washing out the foreground so that you see that uh, even the foreground is, um, the whole picture is perfectly lit. And uh, audiences were not used to a shot like this. They would expect to see first Susan Alexander, then the reporter, then the waiter, see the foreground, then the background. If the foreground was in focus, the background would be out. Now, this is a tiny papier-mâché statue, and then there is a wipe here that is invisible to take us from what appears to be a very big statue uh, down to a full-size set. And once again here, an example of the way that Wells is able to create an immense uh, feeling of wealth and luxury with very, very little that you actually see. This scene uses an echo chamber. Wells, of course, a master of radio sound and using overlapping dialogue. And the footsteps there on the marble floor, uh, listen to the doors as they open and close, look at that beam of light coming down from the ceiling. The guard comes forward, and we've really uh, been shown almost nothing here. We've seen a door, a wall, a floor, a table, a chair, uh, three actors, and a papier-mâché statue that looks like it's enormous but is actually very small, and yet we've uh, had created for us the Walter Park uh, Thatcher Library, a... Um, a space that seems very real and very convincing, uh, even though it's made uh, really with smoke and mirrors. Now listen, listen to that door and the chord on Bernard Herrmann's score that underlines it as it closes, giving us a sense of the importance of this library. Now, uh, the second of the flashbacks, and this will show us uh, Mr. Thatcher as he goes out west uh, to meet young uh, Charles Foster Kane. And here's our first look at Rosebud, the sled. That's Buddy Swan playing young Charles Foster Kane. The musical cue there as he throws the snowballs would be very much a kind of a radio sort of uh, a sound telling you what you're looking at. But now look at this shot very carefully. This is an extraordinary shot. Uh, that is uh, Agnes Moorhead as Kane's mother there. A lot of people think that her performance is the best in the movie, a great uh, a New York stage and radio actress. And look as the camera comes back, and you see that little hat 
uh, on the table there, and it just kind of jiggled a little bit as they sat down. I want you to play this back on the DVD and look at it again because, of course, the camera moves straight through the table. How did it do that? Well, the table was built to be in two pieces and to come together after the camera had cleared it so that the camera can track all the way back across that room and keep Charles Foster Kane in focus in the window in the background with lots of light back there in order to make him show up while we have this composition in the foreground as they sit down at a table that the camera has literally gone right through. The tracks are invisible but they're, uh, they're at the bottom uh, of the screen. You can't see them of course. Now we see one of the triangular compositions that uh, uh, Wells and Tolan like throughout the movie. Um, it's said in terms of, uh, of the rules of composition that a shot seems to move in the angle of its, uh, of its, uh, in the direction of its sharpest angle, and so this shot seems to move down and to the right so that all the focus of it, including uh, the eye lines of the husband, um, uh, lead us to the mother who is signing away uh, control um, of her son's life, and as she does so, the father moves into the back of the shot, and later that's going to be echoed by a scene where Cain himself assigns away control of his empire and walks into the back of the shot. Now the camera moves forward again, uh, and she looks out the window and calls in her son. And if you look at that very carefully on the DVD, you'll see that the camera moves back and forth across the room, even through items of furniture that seem to be there. Um, where the camera would have had to move, and that's done by having the furniture uh, built so that it can be moved into position quickly as the camera clears it. It's a very interesting uh, device. And look here, everything here is in focus. Everything in the back is in focus. Everybody, everything in the foreground is in focus. They have cut from her in the window to her outside. They have moved now to the point where they're very close to the camera. And what Tolan did, and he wrote about this in 1941, um, is he experimented with, with, with lenses uh, that allowed him essentially to have uh, universal focus. Uh, a typical way of shooting this movie would have been to have the foreground in focus and the background out of focus. But if you look up there at Kane's boarding house, those letters are just as much in focus as the young actor in the foreground. And the idea of deep focus was that you had to look through uh, the, the, the composition and decide what you wanted to look at or the director would, would direct you uh, where to look uh, by the action, by the eye lines, by the movement, by the compositions, by the angles implied by the composition so that here for example Mr. Thatcher in the upper left hand looking down at young Kane causes all of the focus to be on him, this stubborn little boy uh, with his sled and we'll know later what that sled means uh, as they focus in on him. Now, of course, this has all been one take. It started with, uh, with the mother in the window. They come outside, they come close, they struggle, they fall back. The camera moves in again. And now, when he does cut in for a close-up, it's for dramatic effect. Uh, another uh, director would have cut in for a close-up much more quickly. And here we have time-lapse as the snow gathers on the sled, and throughout the movie, uh, Wells likes to use uh, devices like this to show the passage of time. The most famous example of that, of course, uh, is the um, uh, breakfast scene. But here, notice how tall Thatcher is. He's standing on a box there, and they built sets so that they could get them at floor level to exaggerate uh, high angles and to show the ceilings. And what we've just seen there 
is uh, one of the neatest uh, flash-forwards in cinematic history. Between Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, 20 years have passed, and young Charles Foster Kane is now 25. He's over in Europe. He's uh, spending money, and Thatcher is 20 years older and is exasperated uh, by the irresponsibility of his ward. The essay by Toland about the movie pointed out that... Uh, 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 they often built sets on parallels. Parallels, uh, that's a movie term for, um, uh, for supports that the camera can move on. Uh, they build it so that the camera could be at floor level or even below floor level. They did not put parallels above the set so it could shoot down very frequently because they wanted to be able to show the ceilings. Run a newspaper. <sighs> This montage here with the uh, Bernard Herrmann uh, jolly, cheerful music covers lots of time with a lot of uh, short shots that lead now in this dramatic entrance uh, to Wells uh, at 25. This is the first time that anybody in the movie uh, audience will have seen Wells as he looked at that time. Uh, Wells was famous for dramatic entrances. His entrance in The Third Man, when he appears in the doorway, is maybe the most dramatic entrance in cinema history. But here again, notice how the witness here uh, is Thatcher, and so he's in the right uh, foreground looking down. Usually the right foreground of this picture will be occupied either by uh, Mr. Thompson, the inquiring reporter, or by the witness who is remembering what is happening in any given flashback. And, of course, the diagonals here of Joseph Cotton uh, on the left and uh, uh, George Kalouris on the right, their eye lines going down, focus on Wells, and cause us to look at him. Now he sits down, and now look at these two actors. There's going to be a moment when they stand up together, and you can see them kind of uh, signaling to each other with their body language. Uh, they, they kind of brace, the conversation goes on, and then look at this. They're going to see... In just a second, they're kind of telling each other, we're going to stand up now. Perfectly coordinated with the jumble in the background that's going to be explained a little bit later, everything that's in the background there. He's literally moved his entire operation into this newspaper office and lives here, sleeps here, and eats here. Is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher. The camera moves slowly to once again reestablish uh, Thatcher in the right as the witness. And now here they go. They're about to... There we go. They stand up um, on cue with each other, uh, and Thatcher walks away. Uh, throughout the movie, it's going to be a visual strategy that the right foreground will be occupied by witnesses, either by the inquiring reporter or by the people who are uh, doing the flashbacks. And in the background... You see the world's greatest newspaper staff, as they're soon to be introduced, watching on as uh, Kane discusses um, his policies, which as a young man are to oppose big business, uh, to oppose millionaires, to oppose trusts, to be the defender of the little man, um, to sell papers. Um, oh, that's a great line there. At a rate of a million dollars a year, I'd have to close this. I'd have to quit in 60 years. And, of course, Hearst in his early days uh, was the defender of the little man, and so was Joseph Pulitzer, who invented the penny press. 
um, papers uh, selling for a penny or two with enormous circulations and headlines to grab the readers as opposed to the more respectable and state papers. Now look at this shot. This is a fabulous shot. This is a flash forward here. It's, uh, we just saw Kane at the beginning of his career. Now here's the crisis point. And look at him walking into the background here. He's just been told that when he signs this paper, he's giving off control of his empire. And notice that when he gets back there, the windows are six feet off the floor. And so he's diminished. The optical illusion of the space here is uh, a trick played on us by the fact that the windows are much higher off the floor than we thought. Now as he walks back into the foreground, the optical illusion reverses itself. The windows now seem to be of average size and at an ordinary height above the floor uh, as he turns and comes back to the screen. Now those windows, when you look back there, those window sills do not look six feet off the floor. So it's a wonderful way to use deep focus and the depth of this set in order to show Kane at the moment when he's losing his empire being diminished to the point where he doesn't even come up to the window sill. It's a visual pun. It's like a visual... Um, composition to allow us uh, uh, to see visually what is happening dramatically, which is that Cain, by signing this paper, is no longer going to have control of this empire because he spent too much money, uh, he squandered uh, money on Xanadu, uh, he hasn't been a good businessman. And so now in these two shots, which were bookended, we have Cain right at the beginning, a young man filled with confidence at the beginning of his career, and now Cain uh, in his 60s. Um, signing it away, uh, trustees will have to now control his spending and keep him from trying to buy up everything in the world. And here what's interesting is we have Mr. Bernstein in the witness position on the right, and he hasn't even really been introduced yet as a proper character. This is uh, essentially a flashback by Bernstein within Thatcher's flashback, and there is interesting confusion throughout the movie as to whether within each flashback the person whose flashback it is could remember or was present at everything that happens in his flashback. Here, of course, we have two witnesses. We have Bernstein and we have Thatcher both remembering this. But it's recounted by Thatcher in his um, journal as read by Mr. Thompson in the Thatcher Library. And then he closes it because he hasn't found out what he wanted to find out, which is the meaning of Rosebud. Kind of an interesting little byplay here between the masculine woman and the kind of effeminate man. Notice how even when he faces the camera, uh, William Allen is backlit in such a way that his face is essentially dark. Who's a busy man? Me? Now here's another a nice shot. This is Mr. Bernstein as an older man. This will now be the beginning of his flashback. And Kane looks down on him just as Thatcher looked down from a similar part of the screen in the previous shot. One of the things that Wells and Wise and Tolan worked on was to have seamless edits in this movie wherever possible, transitions between the various uh, segments, between the various times and the movements back and forth in time. My favorite moment in Citizen Kane doesn't even involve Kane or Wells at all. It's Mr. Bernstein's speech, delivered so wonderfully by Everett Sloan, uh, about the girl who got off the ferry wearing the white dress and carrying the parasol and in the fact that not a month has gone past in all those years when he hasn't thought about that girl I think that speech that wonderful speech by Herman Mankiewicz encapsulates a feeling that all of us have uh, that happiness is there somewhere in the world sometimes it passes us 
and we don't reach out and take it. Thank you. It's interesting there the way the shiny desk creates a, uh, a mirror effect. So you see Mr. Bernstein uh, reflected as he, as he talks about memory, about the fact that something that happened 50 years ago, you may never forget it, and it may affect all of your life. And, of course, that's in a way a, a key to Rosebud because what Kane lost was not so much the sled as his childhood, just as Bernstein here has lost the image of the woman with the parasol. Notice that he's diminished by that gigantic chair, which makes him seem smaller and older than he does elsewhere in the movie. It's the same. The actor is the same size, but the chair makes it seem as if he's grown smaller with age. He moves to the background there. You can see the rain on the window. That's, of course, a set, and we have a mat drawing behind of the skyline of New York. There's the ticker. Uh, he has walked into the back and come back forward again just as Wells did uh, in the previous scene. There's a lot of that kind of mirroring in this movie of physical actions. And here he's diminished, you see, by the painting. When he stands and looks up at the painting, he seems as small as, uh, as Cain did when he stood underneath the windowsill. And I keep repeating this. I guess I'll be repeating it for the whole movie. The right foreground is the witness position. And there's Mr. Allen looking at him as uh, Bernstein, who's only known as Mr. Bernstein. We never find out his first name. And uh, Everett Sloan, uh, like many of the actors in Citizen Kane, was a radio actor from New York. And Wells had worked with all these people. Many of their faces were new to movie audiences. They were seeing them for the first time. Now here, this is a matte drawing. You see the fade uh, kind of covers it a little bit, and then we cover down to a real car, real people, full size, but only the doorway of the Enquirer building is real. It's a real set that was built, and the entire building above the doorway uh, is a matte drawing. Uh, so that what they did, instead of using a real building or building a gigantic uh, a set, um, was to use drawings to cover two-thirds or three-quarters of the screen. Now, there we have the famous visible ceilings, the low-angle shot, the visible ceilings. Those are Muslim ceilings. There are microphones right above them. Light can go through them. little bit of body language there is Jebediah Leland, played by Joseph Cotton, doesn't want to let that pole come between himself and, uh, and his friend Charles Foster Kane. The two of them had been uh, childhood friends and had studied in Europe together. Now they're going to run a newspaper together. Uh, Erskine Sanford as the editor, uh, bumbling, um, officious, doesn't realize which one of these two people is, uh, is Kane. Uh, picks the one who looks a little more distinguished, and that would be Joseph Cotton. Made a mistake, Cotton and Wells uh, played best friends who went to school together in Europe in two movies, uh, this movie and The Third Man, and they're two of the best movies ever made. Uh, they were lifelong friends and associates. Now, what Greg Tolan pointed out in his 1941 uh, <laughs> article about uh, Citizen Kane uh, is that the ceilings were made unusually low. Not only did they want visible ceilings, but they made them low. Now, there you see what are supposed to be skylights, uh, but are actually lights hidden in plain view. Uh, those lights are helping to illuminate the set, although most of the lighting in the movie, in, in sets where there are visible ceilings, was done from below, according to Toland. Uh, this is basically shot from below here, and you can kind of see that in terms of some of the shadows as they as they fall, as the people go in and out through the doorway. The ceilings were made very detailed, Tolan points out. Uh, lots of uh, molding, uh, various designs. We're going to see um, 
in later sealings uh, the treatment to make them look like they're really there, even though the microphone is right above their heads. That's how they're recording the sound. The microphone is invisible right above their heads. And Tolan said that one of the great advantages, one of the terrific advantages of visible ceilings was you didn't have to worry about mic shadows because the mics were hidden. Now, there you see up lights from below helping to define the ceiling. When you put light on muslin from below, it makes it look just as solid as if it were plaster. You still eating? I'm still hungry. Now, look, Mr. Carter, here's a front page story. Here is... An example of the way that set after set in this movie is filled with bric-a-brac. It's as if uh, uh, Kane, who is a great collector, who collects um, uh, people and statues and, uh, and antiques, uh, fills his life with this. And here in the lower right hand, of course, uh, writing away there in the same office, is Mr. Bernstein, who is the witness and so therefore takes the witness position. Uh, frequently in a movie, directors and cinematographers will assign parts of the screen uh, to particular actors or to actors playing a particular kind of role in order to create a consistent visual motif, and that's certainly what they did here. Another low-angle shot. Uh, and to repeat, Toland actually had these sets built so that he could bring the camera down all the way to the floor or below the floor so that the, the set would be on, on, um, on scaffolding above uh, the studio uh, soundstage floor. If Mr. Silverstone gets suspicious and asks to see your man's badge, your man is to get indignant. The construction of some of these shots is more complex than it looks. That one, for example, has a light in the foreground and perfect focus, and then the people in the background. And uh, it's really tricky to light that. You have to have lights for every different part uh, of the shot, including lots of light in the background. Now, look at this when we pull away. And you'll be able to see everything you see there. Everything you see there is real. All of that's real. And then... You see, everything else is a painting. It's all a mat. They have the reality um, up to the uh, top of the, of the ground floor, and then the rest is just a drawing. Mat artists were very skilled at drawing buildings and cityscapes and landscapes that could be seamlessly integrated uh, into live-action, full-scale stuff to make it look real. We did it. Tired? Tough day. A wasted day. Wasted? Mm -hmm. You only made the paper over four times. Interesting here how these gas lights uh, play out behind Charles Foster Kane's head, making him look a little satanic as he writes this Declaration of Principles. Uh, the young man filled with idealism uh, who can't wait to uh, get his hands on this paper, express uh, his young radical socialist ideals, ideals that will change dramatically in the course of a lifetime. And here, as he steps forward, notice his face goes into shadow. He's backlit here. He's got his principles but in a way, through the composition of the two foreground figures, the emphasis becomes, oddly enough, in the background on Joseph Cotton's face, who is listening and who is uh, uh, very curious about the fact that this friend of his seems so idealistic. Once again, you can't see Kane's face. You see, at the very moment when Kane is saying what he stands for, you can't see him. The backlighting here is quite deliberate in order to do that as the two men, uh, Jed Leland and Mr. Bernstein, look up at him and are witnesses as he signs this Declaration of Principles. And again, the composition and the eye lines bring our eyes down now to the signature. And then he stands into the light as he hands it over to the press man. And Leland takes a good look at it because that's going to be important later on in Jed Leland's life and in his relationship with Charles Foster Kane. Here again, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but um, 
a low angle, shows the ceiling. Because the characters loom over the camera, they seem to be a little more mythic, a little more archetypal, a little bigger than life. And I think that's the point. Uh, another director would have cut into close-ups. We would have seen Mr. Bernstein looking. Now, there's a typical close-up there. Uh, we would have had the whole scene broken down with close-ups like that. But here, with these two close-ups, it's just the same as the two close-ups that ended the previous uh, long, unbroken scene. You, you have it all in one take, and then you cut into the close-ups as the punchline. But you don't break up the entire shot into close-ups and two shots and three shots and so forth. You let it all go, and then you go for the punchline. This, of course, is a very famous uh, shot here. They, essentially, they got it by rolling the film backwards. And you'll see uh, a little common sense will show you how they did this. Uh, they they, they, they want to hire the Chronicle staff. Uh, they want them all to come to work for the Inquirer. And what you do here is you start with real footage of real human beings. Look at this. Isn't that nice? Watch this. There we go. And you back it up. You print it backwards in order to make it into the still photograph. And then you retouch it a little bit to change their clothing. And so you get that wonderful um, the visual uh, extravaganza of the photograph that becomes the living staff. Now, this is a scene that was originally going to be set in a brothel in the Breen office. The censors in Hollywood wouldn't let him do it. Can't have a scene in a brothel. Can't show Citizen Kane taking all of his reporters out uh, to a brothel. And so they moved it to the set that they used for the newsroom. This is the same room that is the Inquirer newsroom. And as Kale points out, Pauline Kale in her wonderful study, Raising Kane, uh, this movie has a little bit of everything. It has drama, it has comedy, it has a little animation, as we'll see. It has uh, shadow figures on the wall. Uh, and here it has a musical comedy number. Thank you. Mr. Bernstein. The composer, Bernard Herrmann, one of the great composers uh, in Hollywood history, had fun in this movie creating uh, here a musical comedy number. Later he writes um, arias for an opera, plus all the incidental and background music. Notice the lights coming on above the ceiling there. Did you notice that? The ceiling lights up, that's because the lights are above the ceiling coming down, and there are also footlights, and you can actually see them. Look in the lower left-hand corner uh, of the screen below Joseph Cotton's left shoulder. You can see footlights there uh, on the floor of the set uh, so that the, uh, the cane and the dancing girls are, are lit from below as well as uh, from the sides. What's nice here, uh, in some cases, the, the low-level lighting is used to give a realistic look, but here uh, it looks a little sinister. You know, when you put a flashlight under your chin and shine it up, it makes you look uh, kind of, you know, kind of like scary when you're at summer camp. And here, the low-level lighting of those uh, dancing girls in the background, and in a moment, the low-level lighting of Kane uh, is going to make them look a little sinister too. Notice the fluidity of the camera here. How they cut on action from the from this shot to this shot. There, the Barker, he looks a little sinister. He looks a little kind of like, um, kind of sideshowish. Uh, the low angle light, uh, he doesn't look as happy as he should. It's a little bit too much. And that's also what Jebediah Leland is going to think in a shot we'll get in a second. Uh, he's looking at all of this, uh, the childhood friend of Cain, and wondering if Cain has 
kind of lost his, his way in life, has gotten carried away by his own image. Because after all, who else would compose a song and dance number in his honor? This, this, this song is about Citizen Kane. There you see Joseph Cotton. And, of course, Mr. Bernstein is totally enthusiastic, completely into it, loves it. But Cotton, Cotton is holding back a little bit. He's forcing himself to sing a little bit. There's a little hardness there. The other reporters are all having a great time. Look at the look in his eyes there. This is a man who is saying, what has happened to my friend? Uh, is this the young socialist radical uh, that I knew who wrote the Declaration of Principles? Or is this a man who was already on his way to the pleasures of the flesh and to an obsession with his own image? The smoke that he just exhaled is interesting, but not nearly as interesting as the smoke he is about to exhale. Because just in a second, we're going to see Cain reflected in the window. We'll remember young Cain playing with his sled in the window uh, in Colorado. Uh, it's a kind of an echo of that. He's out the window. He's dancing around. To the chronicle policies, as they are now to our policies. Sure. Well, look in that shot, and you see how low the ceiling is. But look where the smoke goes now. Watch this. See? He kind of negates his friend. Look how low those ceilings are. You see what Tolan is talking about. The ceilings are lower than they would be in any real city room. In fact, Wells's head almost touches the ceiling. Uh, we don't really notice that when we're looking at the film for the first time. Uh, we're not supposed to, and we don't, because we kind of go along with things. But that would be a very low ceiling in any newsroom that I've ever worked in. And the dancing in the background, focused by the two friends in the foreground, uh, Leland and uh, Bernstein. I got a cable for Mr. Kane. And now the newsroom has been redressed to be filled with purchases that Kane has sent back on his tour of Europe. And if you really want to spend the time to do this, and people have, you can kind of look at these statues and kind of track them through the movie. There are statues that turn up over and over in the movie in various contexts. There is the little statue in Susan Alexander's apartment, the first time that uh, Cain goes to visit her, that later turns up full size next to the uh, uh, fireplace in uh, Xanadu so that you can track some of these props through the movie and even see them at the end in the famous scene uh, where uh, everything has become um, fodder for the warehouse. World's biggest diamond. Notice how the black line there defines the ceiling, so it's not just a gray area. You can see that it really is the ceiling. Tolan said they put that line in there so you could see that it was the ceiling, that it wasn't just um, uh, space. Welcome home, Mr. King. Now, look at this. The foreground, totally in focus. You can read it. Tolan was very, very, very uh, proud of the shot. Tolan loved the way they put this shot together using the deep focus. Lots of light in the background. You can see that the skylights back there are being used to conceal lights that are illuminating the back of the scene. The front of the scene is being illuminated by floor lights and lights that are behind the line of the camera. Uh, Townsend, I have been away so long, I don't know your routine. I... Uh... I've got a little uh, social announcement. I wish you wouldn't treat it any differently than you would any other social announcement. Uh, Mr. Kane. As Mr. Bernstein insists upon reading the words on this loving cup that are being presented on Kane's return from Europe, uh, Kane goes into the background and notice his hat there and then focus all the way to the back. 
But Tolan was so proud of the fact that you could read the writing on the side of the cup, even while you can see in perfect focus all of the actors further back in the shot. Uh, that kind of focus was considered to be all but impossible at that time, and he was able to do it with his experimental use of uh, lenses and lighting and, and fast films and a special coating uh, on the lens that, that uh, diminished uh, highlights and reflections. Before he's through, she'll be a president's wife. Here, the over-the-shoulder, all the way down to Kane and his new bride down below. Now there, uh, the upper part of the shot, uh, matte drawing, the lower part, full scale, and now back again to Mr. Bernstein remembering it all. But what an extraordinary shot that you can shoot over the shoulder of people looking out a window and see somebody a floor below outside on the street. And to do that, once again, uh, uh, he used the double arc um, lamps that were developed for Technicolor, extra light, lots of light in the background in order to bring it forward because uh, the further you are away from a camera, as you've probably noticed in your own home photography, uh, the more light you need. You don't need as nearly as much light to shoot somebody who's standing three feet from you as somebody who's standing ten feet from you. And so by adjusting the light in the foreground and the background, he was able to do it. Here, once again, Bill Allen backlit, uh, just an anonymous figure in a business suit. And looking down on Mr. Bernstein so that their eye lines are parallel, Charles Foster Kane. Bernstein, the keeper of the flame as it were. That flame, in a sense, in the fireplace could be said to burn forever underneath the effigy of Charles Foster Kane because he has always remained loyal, just as uh, Jebediah Leland, the Joseph Cotton character, has been filled uh, with doubts and dismay uh, from time to time uh, in his life, and by the end of his life has grave doubts about the greatness of Citizen Kane. But for Mr. Bernstein, there was never any doubt. Uh, he's kind of a romantic, as he reveals in that wonderful, wonderful monologue about the um, person, the young woman getting off of the ferry. Now here, Mr. Allen goes to, William Allen, Mr. Thompson, goes to visit uh, Jebediah Leland, uh, Jed Leland. And um, this scene had to be cobbled together at the last moment. Uh, Cotton was always very unhappy with it. He thought the makeup wasn't good, and particularly the skull cap showing his balding head wasn't good. In fact, he put an eyeshadow on to cover up the low quality of the hairpiece. The reason they had to rush it into production was that in another shot we'll see later, Orson Welles broke his ankle. He broke his ankle going down the stairs in the confrontation with boss Jim Geddes. So he couldn't shoot. So they, they whipped Cotton into the makeup and into the bathrobe and put him on a chair and shot him in front of a back projection screen, uh, a blank screen, and then they later supplied the back projection that you see now. It's real moving pictures in the background. You can see those figures moving around, but they're not really there physically. He's in front of a, of a back projection screen. And uh, Cotton never liked this scene. He felt that Wells had gotten a great makeup job and he got a bad makeup job. He didn't think that he looked old enough. And as I said, he hated his uh, skull cap. But here, he's the next witness now. That's your tip. Hmm? <laughs> he had a generous mind. I don't suppose anybody ever had so many opinions. But he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane. He never had a conviction except Charlie Kane in his life. I suppose he died without one. It's been uh, pretty unpleasant. Jed Leland is a name that was um, put together out of the names of two famous theatrical people at that time. One of them was Leland Howard, and the other was Jeb Harris. And uh, they became Jebediah Leland, or Jeb Leland. They were both producers on Broadway. 
who were known to Wells, who of course came out of Broadway and had this extraordinary career as a child wonder in his 20s on Broadway and on the radio and became an international celebrity with his War of the Worlds broadcast uh, in which he reported an attack by Martians uh, in New Jersey that a lot of people uh, thought was real. People thought we were really under attack from Mars. So that became the great publicity breakthrough for Wells in his career. But this was a, a, a kid who, before he was even a teenager, was already astonishing people as a child prodigy. He edited an edition of Shakespeare when he was in prep school. He went to Ireland in, uh, in his teens and faked his way onto the stage of the Abbey Theater. Now look at that dissolve there. You notice the background fades out, and then the foreground fades out, and then the background comes in. And um, uh, Tolan uses that throughout the... Um, throughout the movie, the fading out of the background, then the foreground, then the fading in as a, as a kind of an interesting two-stage transition. A transition in this case to the most famous montage in the movie, the famous breakfast table montage showing the disintegration of a marriage. And that's Ruth Warwick, who is still active um, on television, uh, was still active well into the 90s, uh, an ageless actress. Here they are as the young newlyweds. Uh, very happy, uh, sitting close together, same end of the table. Uh, you can see by the way that he smiles there that he's still in love with her. But now the, the, um, the flash pan, and she looks a little more dubious. Notice the makeup here is adjusted to age them. Now they're uh, separated into uh, alternating one shots instead of being held together as they were in the two shot. Now another flash pan. She's a little older still. Uh, he's a little sterner still. They shot this sequence in reverse order, taking off layers of makeup on Kane rather than putting them on. They shot the older Kane first, then the little bit less older Kane, and so forth, down to the young Kane. Uh, now there'll be another flash pan. Um, their, their dialogue here, as you will be able to hear if, if you ever listen to the movie without me talking through it, uh, involves... Uh, Increasing differences over their marriage, over their politics, over his treatment of her uncle, the president, uh, over their happiness with each other. And notice that all of these shots have been alternating close-ups or medium shots. The very first shot of the montage was a two-shot, showing the two of them so cozy and close together at the end of the table. Now, there hasn't been another two-shot, uh, but just these alternating medium shots. Notice she's reading the Chronicle now. He's reading the Enquirer. And then the camera pulls back, and we get another two-shot. So the sequence began with them very close together in a two-shot. Now it ends with them far away. And the background fades out, and the foreground comes in, and then the background disappears, and the background here fades in. Uh, so that's the way that they did it throughout the movie. Tolan loved that, where you bring down the background, then you bring down the foreground, as you bring up the new background, and then you bring up the new foreground. It's done just by dimming the lights in the background uh, so that it doesn't register on the, on the uh, film and then dimming the lights in the foreground. It's done, oddly enough, it's an in-camera dissolve done with lights where you take the light away and then bring the light up in the next shot and then superimpose them uh, so that the dissolve um, uh, seems to work in two stages or, if you want to look at it that way, in four stages. Background, foreground, background, foreground. Of the American public. Gizzy couldn't help it. She must have had something for it. Well, that first night, according to Charlie, all she had was a toothache. 
once again, the background goes down, and you still saw his face in the foreground as he remembers that first day, the first day that Cain met Susan Alexander. And this is a set with wet streets. We know, of course, that at night in the movies, the streets are always wet. Even if they're shooting in the desert, somehow it seems to have just rained. And the reason for that is, as you can see, wet streets photograph well. Dry streets at night don't photograph at all. Wet streets give you those wonderful reflections, the lights uh, on the uh, concrete, the, um, uh, the detail, uh, uh, the, the mirror effect. Look at that suit in the window back there, and then you can see it, the entire mirror reflected, uh, the entire window reflected in the sidewalk. And this, of course, is the first time that Kane has met uh, Dorothy Commodore. And if you listen carefully, you'll find that he was on his way to the West Side Warehouse to look for some old stuff of his mother's. And, of course, if he had ever completed that journey, he might have found Rosebud the sled, because we find out at the end of the movie that it would have been there. But no, he splashed with mud, and then this young, simple girl, this shop girl, uh, who doesn't know who he is, invites him in to clean up a little bit, and uh, he does so. It's interesting that a man this wealthy and this famous would have been on this mission by himself. It shows how important it was to him personally to go to that warehouse to look at the relics of his lost childhood. Closes the door, and of course in those days a woman did not allow a man to be in her room with the door closed. The landlady wouldn't like it. If you look in the background of this first apartment of Susan Alexander, played by Dorothy Commodore, you see a lot of interesting details. One is interesting above all. And you can see it there in the left foreground. It's the globe. It's the sphere that he drops in the opening shot of the movie. And the little uh, snow scene there of the cottage in the snow reminds him of his childhood. It's right in front of a photograph showing her as a little girl in a way it links their childhoods. That's the globe that will later turn up in her bedroom in Xanadu and will be picked up by him and then later dropped by him in his death scene. And notice, now this is the shadow play that Cahill talked about in pointing out that, Cahill, that, 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 that Wells in this movie used every possible technique, not simply special effects, matte drawings, optical printings, uh, not just uh, uh, complex fades and dissolves, um, not just animation, not just newsreels, but even shadow play. Every possible way of casting light on a screen is exploited by Orson Welles in this film. And you can see here that one of the things he likes about her is the fact that she doesn't know who he is. She's never heard of Charles Foster Kane. She doesn't know how many newspapers he owns or how many radio stations. I had a toothache and... No, I don't know. She's a simple girl, and he... That night, on his way to recapture his own youth, winds up capturing her youth instead. If he cannot find out what it was that he lost in his childhood, perhaps he will supply for her what he has decided she is missing in her young adulthood. Now, of course, the whole problem there, and it becomes the crux of their relationship, is it's what he wants to do for her, not what she wants done. Uh, she unwisely mentions that she, um, she likes to sing, and before she knows it, he has made her into an opera singer. There were many parallels uh, that people thought they saw between this relationship, where the rich older man tries to mastermind the career of the younger artist, and uh, her own relationship with Marion Davies, the uh, gifted comedian and actress,
who was his mistress for many, many, many years and lived with him at San Simeon while his, um, his wife uh, lived separately uh, in New York. Uh, she wouldn't give him a divorce because she was a Catholic, so Hearst lived with Davies. And many people seeing this movie, the movie is actually more famous now than Hearst is, think that uh, Hearst created Marion Davies' career. Certainly he promoted it. Certainly his papers gave her enormous headlines and enormous publicity. And Luella Parsons, who was his tame gossip columnist, wrote about her all the time. But Marion Davies is different from Susan Alexander Kane in the key factor that she was talented. She was good. She was charming and she was funny. Well, don't tell me your toothache is still bothering you. Oh, no, that's all gone. All right. And if you read Racing Cane by Pauline Kael, and you certainly should, uh, there's a very interesting analysis in there of Marion Davies's career so that uh, it would be unfair to equate the two stories. background fades out, the new comes in, and this is the new apartment that he's put her in, and you can see through the curtains there the bed in the second room, which is kind of an interesting detail. She is now being supported by uh, Charles Kane, and uh, she is his mistress. She's more nicely dressed now, as you can see. Her hair is a little bit differently done. Notice him clapping there, because a little bit later he's going to be the only person clapping at one of her performances. And now this political rally. And what's interesting here is the way they create a whole political campaign basically out of thin air. You think you see a lot more than you do see. Look at this uh, sequence that begins here with this famous, famous giant poster of Kane. And there he is on the stage, and all that's real. Well, I don't need to tell you that. You can see that it's real. But now you see that the Kane poster and the people on the stage uh, are surrounded by a matte drawing of the amphitheater with an audience that isn't really there. They're moving lights f behind little holes in the drawing in order to make it seem as if there's motion. Here's the low angle shot, very dramatic. This is one of the famous stills from the movie that everybody remembers. Then we cut in close uh, to show the son and the wife and uh, because you can't really show thousands of people there because they're not there. Now we cut up um, to another angle in a second as he makes a joke about boss Jim Geddes, his son and the father exchange, wa exchange waves. Now a low angle shot of Leland looking there kind of the same way that he looked during the dance scene in the newsroom as if he's not quite sure he buys this act. But the low angle shot like that avoids the necessity of having lots of extras in the background. The low angle means you couldn't see them anyway. Here again, only six or seven actors on screen. But the soundtrack um, gives the impression of an enormous crowd in a big room. Well, I'd make my promises now if I weren't too busy arranging to keep them. And boss Jim Geddes knows I'll keep it. My first official act as governor of the state will be to appoint a special district attorney. And now we're going to get a hangle shot looking down on the whole scene from the point of view of boss Getty. There he is. Now, everything inside 
Everything to the right is real. The stage is real. The two guys standing next to the stage on the floor are real. And everything else is a drawing. It's put together from four different pieces of film. The two guys standing on the stage, on the floor next to the stage, were shot separately from the people on the stage. Boss Jim Gettys shot separately, too, and then the drawing of the audience and the amphitheater. So four different pieces of film put together to create that shot. And that's uh, what people mean when they say that the movie is filled with special effects. When you look at this movie for the first time, you just see a political rally. You don't think of it as a special effects shot, but it's as, as, as contrived as anything in Star Wars. It really is. It's made out of thin air. Now we have this sequence where the first wife, played by Ruth Warwick, has to take him to a rendezvous that he certainly doesn't expect he's going to be going to tonight. And look at that K around his neck. You see, by now, he's become an inflated, pompous, self-important tycoon. Uh, he's lost that uh, youthful enthusiasm and freshness. He's no longer the man who wrote the Declaration of Principles. And in a shot like this, of course, Tolan is not above using alternating over-the-shoulder close-ups because it's very much an exchange, a dialogue between these two people and their eyes and their faces and their expressions so that here the traditional language of classic cinematography works. We notice the number there, 185, because it will be important in just a little bit in a newspaper picture. She goes in, the shadow's on the doorway, and the shadow of the maid on the doorway who calls him by name, which, of course, she shouldn't do. That's, that's a very ominous sign that the maid at this address knows Mr. Kane. Very low angle, the ceiling's there, the ceiling inside the next room, lots of light in the background to introduce this backlit figure of boss Jim Geddes. And in any uh, composition in the movies, movement is dominant over things at rest, so that even though you have an enormous amount of frame there, when he moves into it, that's where you look. You look at what's moving, not at what is still. And cinematographers and directors know that. They know how they can focus the way you look by who is moving. So you notice there, when she moved in, we followed her. Then his head whips around, and we go back over to Kane. Then Kane moves in to the left. And now the two backlit figures in the foreground make her in the middle into the subject. Charles, you're breaking this man's neck would scarcely explain... It's very, it's like a dance with light and shadow here. The way that Tolan is able to bring our eye from one part of the frame to another. Now we look at Susan Alexander because she moves in. And the others don't really move, so the focus is on her. And the eye lines lead to her. And now the movement away and back again, you see, to the deep focus and to Gettys and the entire shot, including the, the close-up we just saw over to the left and now this, this longer shot, all in focus with lots and lots of light. Look at that light in the background to make it work this way. Light that is probably there without any practical reason for being there in terms of the lighting that would be um, existing in that room. Here, once again, the triangular composition so that Kane is in the middle, just as he was with his parents as a little boy. Once again, two people talking about him and deciding his fate, just as his parents were with Walter Park Thatcher. Here's the chance I'm willing to give him. More of a and she runs over to him in a way the way his father did, to say it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, Charlie, as the mother and Thatcher were talking. Here we have the wife and the boss talking. Very 
interesting the way our eyes are torn back and forth between Ray Collins there, who is the veteran radio actor, so very good as Jim Geddes, and the background. And faces illuminated, but not the face of Kane, who was backlit just as he was when he wrote his Declaration of Principles, a mystery man, a man whose motivations and whose personality and values are very much at question here. And here we have, look at that line of heads on the left, from Warwick to Commodore to Wells, the line down and then coming back up again um, to Ray Collins. Um, a wonderful composition. And then he, now, over his shoulder, looking back. The wife in white as the pure, uh, betrayed woman. Uh, the mistress in a costume that reflects both darker and lighter sides. Uh, just as in a movie made it about, uh, well, a few years later, Notorious by Hitchcock, uh, Ingrid Bergman's costumes uh, move from uh, black to, um, to striped to white to reflect her supposed moral uh, status at any moment uh, during a series of scenes. The reason it may be too late. Too late. Collins is so good here because he's apparently a completely, uh, you know, Boss Geddes is apparently a completely corrupt politician, but Collins is a man who uh, has values uh, and a certain old-fashioned standard of behavior, even in his dishonesty, uh, that has been offended by the way Cain operates. Uh, he has a couple of very good speeches here as Geddes in which he, uh, we realize that He's dishonest in a way that still involves a certain code of conduct and a certain generally accepted um, pattern of principles uh, that Cain has cut completely loose from. Cain has no hesitation at all in, um, in destroying a man's reputation in order to sell newspapers. If you listen to this dialogue here, you can get some of that. You're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me. I'm Charles Foster Kane. I'm no cheap, crooked politician. And this is the shot where he broke his ankle. Not exactly in this shot. It's not on camera. But in one of the takes of this scene, as he was running down the stairs, uh, Wells broke his ankle, and that's why they had to um, move to the emergency second set to shoot the Joseph Cotton flashbacks. Here is a lovely example of what can be done uh, in an optical printer. That's a printer where you take a piece of film and line it up with an effect and superimpose them and dissolve so that here we have the moving picture turning into the front page of the opposition newspaper. And later on, you notice the quotes around the word singer there, and Leland is going to say he spent the rest of his life trying to get those quotes taken out from around that word singer by proving that she was. A real singer. Leland, of course, tonight goes to get drunk, and here is <laughs> this is just a wonderful Kane elected or the other choice, Frauda Poles. And many years later, in a British science fiction movie, uh, they had two headlines: "World Saved" and "World Doomed," and it was a it was a um, an homage to Citizen Kane. The low angle shot of the next morning, Leland has succeeded in getting drunk. He's back now to the Inquirer. Extraordinary how this Inquirer set and the Inquirer newsroom uh, 
does double and triple duty. Not only is it a newsroom, but it was also where they had the song and dance sequence, and now it has been turned into Kane for Governor headquarters, the very same set. Uh, the practical reason for that apparently is that um, he used his newspaper as his headquarters for all of his activities, but another reason, of course, is then you don't need to build another set. Here, they, uh, the camera is in a hole in the floor. The camera is literally at shoe level, shooting up at these people. Nice, Mr. King. Ordinarily, when you have a low-angle shot like this, it causes the actors to tower over the camera to gain in stature and importance. But here, oddly enough, it just makes us scrutinize them in a kind of a skewed way. You see, you can see the floor there. You can see how low that we are. And you can also see the concealed lights behind the so-called skylight. And we have this conversation between the disillusioned former friend and the crushed, defeated candidate. And some of the dialogue here, spontaneous. There is a point when Joseph Cotton mispronounces a word. He had to go out east to make a deadline to appear on Broadway, so they shot for 24 hours, and he was very, very tired when he shot this scene, and he mispronounces a word, and uh, Wells leaves it in and kind of chuckles over it, but it wasn't in the script. The fact that he was so tired from working all night made him even more convincing as a drunk here. The foreground, perfect focus on the pants leg, perfect focus all the way to the background. And this uh, speech by Leland is the best speech in the entire movie about Citizen Kane. It explains more about Kane than Rosebud ever does, and it really speaks for many of the people in his life. So that here is really the answer to Rosebud in this, in this dialogue sequence, and not in the last shot of the movie, which simply identifies the sled but doesn't really get to the secret. You know, one of the in-jokes in Citizen Kane, and it might have been a joke on Wells, is that a lot of his collaborators saw a great deal of Orson Wells in Citizen Kane, maybe as much Wells as William Randolph Hearst. And many of the behavioral patterns, uh, much of the uh, acquisitive nature, the desire to be eating and drinking and collecting and accumulating and controlling people and operating as a puppet master uh, was as much or more Wells as it was uh, Hearst or any of the other so-called uh, sources uh, of the character of Citizen Kane. His uh, collaborators admired him as an artist, admired him as a craftsman, but didn't always like him very much as a person. Uh, he had enormous battles with his collaborators. Uh, his, the history of his relationship with John Hausman is a, um, an action-packed one that Hausman has considered in uh, a couple of volumes of autobiography. Uh, he had love-hate relationships with people. William Alland, who plays uh, the inquiring reporter and who was the assistant director and who was the voice of the March of Time, was also, according to a lot of people, Wells' whipping boy and would have to be uh, the victim when Wells was looking for somebody to blame something on. Well, you said yourself you were looking for someone... And that's the moment when he mispronounces the word crematism, criticism. Notice, notice Wells smiling and laughing there. It was unplanned. It wasn't in the uh, screenplay. But they just kept it. They kept on rolling. You never stop shooting on a movie until the director says cut. No matter if a word is mispronounced, no matter if a cue is missed, you just keep rolling. Guess I better try to get drunk anyway. 
I warn you, Jedediah, you're not going to like it in Chicago. The wind comes howling in off the lake, and gosh only knows if they ever heard of lobster Newberg. Well, Saturday... And so he goes off to Chicago, and Wells, of course, knew all about Chicago, born in Kenosha, raised in Chicago after his socially ambitious mother moved there with his feckless doctor father. Uh, then uh, she became very friendly with the Dr. Bernstein. He masterminded Wells's career as a child prodigy. And notice that we're going to be a great opera star. That's what Susan Alexander didn't like. We're going to be a great opera star. It was their career, not her career. And we hear the upbeat music there by uh, Bernard Herrmann, the uh, music that now segues into the opera that he wrote for this movie, the aria that he wrote. That's Fortunio Buonanova, the great character actor there, as the opera coach. We're going to be seeing more of him. And look now at this scene. This is a fabulous scene. Dozens of... Apparently dozens of extras race around, foreground, background, all kinds of props. The backdrop falls into place. It seems as if there were hundreds of people and there are actually only probably about 20. Utter chaos on the opening night of her opera career. And it kind of goes directly from we're going to be a great opera star to this moment. Now watch carefully because we're going to get a famous shot here that is actually in three pieces. He uses light to suggest the curtain going up and then right there, that horizontal line is the wipe to a model. And what we're looking at now is not really backstage but is a scale model. And there's another wipe just to kind of fool us a little bit. And then comes a th third wipe and then... That one wipes in reality again with these two stagehands. So that that apparently unbroken camera movement, isn't that a great payoff there? Uh, instant review of the performance. That one apparently unbroken camera movement consisted of a real stage with a fake curtain going up and then a wipe to a backstage model and then another wipe uh, to the catwalk. So it's in three pieces of film. And as storytelling, it's wonderfully economical. One camera movement encapsulizes her entire opera performance and the reaction to it. And now in the background, of course, we notice Wells coming in because he was uh, in movement there against the, uh, the light of the door so that his silhouette in motion was a kind of a dominant contrast there. Uh, his hat causes him to tower over the others in the, in the, in the scene. And the question is, what happened to Mr. Leland? Well, this particular sequence is based on an actual event in the life of Herman Mankiewicz, the co-author of the screenplay, who was also a close friend of Hearst and Marion Davies until he had a falling out with them, and he sure had a falling out after they saw this movie. But when he was a drama critic on the New York Times, Mankiewicz once got drunk and was unable to finish a review, and uh, the Times humiliatingly had to run an item in the next day's paper saying the review would appear 24 hours later. So Mankiewicz knew about getting drunk and not finishing reviews. Uh, Mankiewicz was often a guest at San Simeon. He was a particular confidant 
uh, Marion Davis, he liked to drink, and she liked to have a drink every once in a while, and Hearst tried to uh, discourage drinking at San Simeon, so the two of them were kind of conspirators who would sneak off on occasion. There's a... Um, one of the most famous of all Hollywood stories is about Mankiewicz throwing up at San Simeon and then brightly saying, well, at least I brought up the white wine uh, with the fish. I uh, threw up at a uh, dinner party for visiting royalty. Close the door. He ain't been drinking before, Mr. King. Never. Who would have heard? What's it say there? The notice. What's he written? Kane asked Bernstein to read what is written, and of course it's very negative. Very negative. Now, um, the bottle in the back, in the, in the foreground, you notice, is in focus, and uh, Mr. Bernstein is in focus. Once again, this use of extreme close-up all the way to medium shot and even to full shot uh, through the use of deep focus photography. And I mention that because we're going to get a shot very soon that is famous for being deep fo focus photography, and it's not. It was actually created in the optical printer uh, because the lighting difficulties and challenges were too great. It's going to be a shot showing Kane in the left foreground finishing Leland's review, and then Leland will appear in the right background, silhouetted in his doorway, and walk forward to an office divider where he will have a conversation with Kane. The left and right parts of this picture were not shot at the same time. The way they did it was to shoot the left-hand side with the, with, with the right totally in darkness, the right-hand side with the left totally in darkness, and then to combine them in a device known as an optical printer to make them look like they're in one shot so that when uh, Cotton is apparently looking at Wells, he is actually uh, not looking at Wells. Wells is not really there. He's looking at a mark. Uh, and Wells, in talking over his shoulder to Cotton, is likewise playing not to a physical actor, uh, but to his knowledge of where that actor would be in the, in the screen. We're going to see that shot in just about a second. Uh, previously, we got the giant close-up of the letters weak, spelling weak, uh, showing that Kane is, is writing the review. He's going to finish the review uh, for Leland. Mr. Kane is finishing it for you. Okay, now we'll see the shot that I was just uh, talking about. Just in a second here. I knew I'd never get that through. Mr. Kane is finishing your review just the way you started it. He's writing a bad notice, like you wanted it to be. I guess that'll show you. Okay, here we go. Now, this is the shot I was describing. The break, if, you're, if you allow your eye to go up along uh, Citizen Kane's shirt sleeve and then up across that architectural detail and into the ceiling, that's the left side of the screen. And everything on the right, uh, the railing, Joseph Cotton, the ceiling and so forth, is the right side of the screen, and those are two different pieces of film that were put together in order to make one shot. The reason being that it was just too difficult to have all the darkness between Leland and Mr. Bernstein in the far back where he's silhouetted in the doorway. You're fired. You're fired, and then the carriage return kind of punctuates that statement with a dramatic uh, sound effect, sort of thing you would hear on the radio. 
And look here, this is a beautiful technique here where the transition is handled with the optically printed upper right, which then is allowed to fade out uh, into the uh, flashback, which we now return to. He thought that by finishing that notice, he could show me he was an honest man. He was always... The uh, uh, use of things like the carriage return and footsteps and so forth would have been very familiar to Wells from his radio days, where you had to tell the story in a way so that the sound effects helped people to visualize what was happening. And here... In a movie like this, uh, the use of sound was unusually sophisticated, overlapping dialogue, dialogue that allows flash-forwards and flashbacks, dialogue to cover transitions and segues, various kinds of voices, various textures of voices, the newsreel and so forth, very alive in terms of sound. The movie is often talked about as a breakthrough film in terms of its visuals, but certainly the soundtrack is also astonishing. And I have listened to this movie... Uh, just in terms of its soundtrack, it's available and found that you can visualize just about everything. Well, I never even answered his letter. Maybe I should have. Guess he was pretty lonely down there in that Coliseum all those years. If you look at milestones in movie history, uh, Birth of a Nation brought together everything up until then in the movies. It's a, it's a deplorable film because of its racism, but nevertheless, from the point of view of technique, what Griffith did in Birth of a Nation was to coalesce all of the advances until then and put them all together into one movie that would point the direction uh, of films to come. And the same thing is true of Citizen Kane. Kane did for the sound period what Birth of a Nation did for the silent period. It accumulated all of these advances, new ideas in sound, in editing, in cinematography, even in acting, and put them all together in one place at one time so that every picture after that in some way or another will be informed by the breakthrough of Citizen Kane. Toothpaste or something or they'll stop them at the desk. You know that young doctor I was telling you about? Well, he's got an idea he wants to keep me alive. <laughs> Observer being in the left rather than the right and now fading back again to once again the Susan Alexander Kane set and the camera physically going through this breakaway sign and down and then you see they have to fudge the fact that they're not really going through that skylight and it's a later interview Mr. Thompson has gone back to talk to Susan Alexander who was more forthcoming now maybe she's had a few extra drinks or isn't in such a bad mood Dorothy Commodore is really one of the great resources of this movie and um, didn't really have a major career after Citizen Kane came out. In fact, uh, the only major movie stars that came out of this movie were Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. The others were big stars, Ruth Warwick, a big star, Agnes Moorhead, a big star, Ray Collins, but either on Broadway or on the radio or as character actors, not as big movie stars papers about us. He lost the election and Norton divorced him. He was really interested in my voice. What do you suppose he built that opera house for? I didn't want it. I didn't want to sing. It was his idea. Everything was his idea. And there, the background fades out and then the new background fades in and then the old foreground fades out. And here we are with Fortunio Buonanova as the verbal coach. And look at that doorway in the background, because I said before the movement is dominant. And you notice Kane, because he moves into that 
unmoving space, and so you see him there. And we get another one of these deep-focused triangular compositions in which the various, the two men on the left create a line that leads back to Cain, and then, of course, the motion of Susan Alexander on the strong axis just to the right of center causes us to come forward to her. And so our eye is restlessly drawn between the background and the foreground of this composition. It's um, interesting the way this kind of focus forces us to think uh, first of the vocal coach, then of Kane listening, unmoving, and now his voice breaks in as he walks forward. Once again, this interesting visual effect where when you walk from the background of a deep focus shot, you seem to grow in stature so that now he towers over the others, having been diminished when he was in the background. I will be the laughing stock of the musical and you world. see that Susan Alexander now is in the lower right-hand corner, which is her position as the witness in this sequence because this is her flashback. What people will think. The newspapers, for example. I run several newspapers between here and San Francisco. It's all right, Tony. I think if you look at the Kane that we meet in Citizen Kane, you see a stubborn young boy who is taken away from everything that he can count on and everything that he loves and everything that he knows. And that's represented not only by Mrs. Kane's boarding house and by his father and his mother, but also by his sled. And he spends the rest of his life trying to get it back again, and he does that by trying to accumulate material objects and people. So that the key to Cain is not his ideology, it's not his philosophy, it's not his statement of principles, it's his hunger. I thought you'd see it my way. And listen to this sound transition now, the way that the sound leads us to a visual cut so that the overlapping sound sometimes precedes a scene or sometimes follows a scene. And this is a seeming mirror of the earlier opera scene, except even more frantic, more dramatic, more confusing backstage. And this time we're going to be looking over her shoulders out into the audience. In the previous shot, we were looking at the stage as the shadow of the curtain came up. But now we see the curtain going up. And notice that they create the opera hall out of darkness and lights. There is no opera hall there. This is the same way that uh, they're able to create Perry Ferguson, the set designer, is able to create Xanadu using shadows, using the idea of what must be there. Here we get the, um, the backdrop, painted backdrop, stage, and the backs of two or three heads. Here the high-angle shot, which conceals the fact that there aren't dozens and thousands of extras back there. Here we only see the conductor. You don't see any extras in the audience. Just lights to conceal where they must be. There's actually a recording of this uh, aria uh, performed properly one of Bernard Herrmann's great scores. He did a lot of work for Hitchcock as well. His last uh, score, of course, was for Scorsese's Taxi Driver. sober, onlooking presence 
of the obsessed monomaniac Kane. We hear people laughing at her performance on the soundtrack. And a little bit of slapstick here as he bounces his head or his hand off the top of the prompter's cage. In a second, that happens. <laughs> and she's just awful. And look there, you have the foreground, the background, that's done in an optical printer. Kane in the left foreground, stage in the background, down below. And now, once again, Kane, the only one applauding. Wait a second, you'll see it. Remember in Susan Alexander's apartment, he applauded all by himself. And now, once again, the sound of two hands clapping. And as he stands up, it's into backlighting so that his face is obscured. He becomes this ominous silhouette. Gets carried away and then recollects himself. Stop telling me he's your friend. Friend don't write that kind of review. Commodore had a very sweet speaking voice, but here, of course, she sounds a little harsh, as she did when she was singing. Reminds me a little bit of the... Uh, the singing and speaking voice in uh, Singing in the Rain by Gene Hagen, who, uh, of course, was the actress who didn't make the transition to sound because nobody wanted to hear what her voice sounded like. Here, Commodore is shrill and, um, and angry. And we get this beautiful connection here. We know, somehow we know what's in this envelope. We've heard that he sent a check to Leland. And now we know not only what the pieces of paper are, but we also intuitively know what the untorn piece of paper is. It's the Declaration of Principles. I sent him a check for $25,000. This shot is going to echo a later shot where she's on the floor at Xanadu surrounded by jigsaw puzzles. Many times in the film, actors are placed in a similar physical position in order to echo various stages of their life. Here, surrounded by her review, she's trying to piece together uh, what her reputation is, and later it just all becomes reduced to a jigsaw puzzle. That's my sin! I'm through! I never wanted to in the first place! Leland, by tearing up the check, of course, affirms his ethics. Kane, by tearing up the declaration, destroys his ethics. The word success in the background there is pretty ironic. And notice the way he tears it up more and more frantically and more and more angrily. We're going to get an echo of that later in the scene where he destroys Susan Alexander's bedroom at Xanadu. Now she's in his shadow. You don't have to talk too much about the symbolism there. It's pretty obvious. She kind of bisects her. Her face is half in shadow. And uh, sure, she gets the great headlines, and this would have been another detail that people picked up on as reflecting Hearst's relationship with Marion Davies. Um, 
Luella Parsons was the columnist for the Hearst Papers. Hedda Hopper, who was a much better gossip columnist, was a freelance syndicated columnist, who was the first person to see um, Citizen Kane. And she called Hearst and said, do you know what Orson Welles has done about you in this movie? So, of course, Parsons was trying to make up for lost ground because her great rival had told her boss about the film, and Parsons led the attack uh, on Kane. The Hearst Papers banned all mention of uh, Citizen Kane, all mention of Orson Welles, and all advertising for RKO Pictures. But let's talk about this shot for a second because you see the glass in the foreground. This was not all done at one time. It's interesting. First, they lit the foreground and kept the entire background in darkness and shot the glass, the spoon, and the bottle. Then they took the foreground away and shot the middle ground and the background with light in it. And then they put the two shots together with an optical printer in order to make it look as if it were all taken at once. It's a shot that tells an entire story. The locked door, the foreground unconscious figure, uh, the bottle of medicine. One shot that tells everything we need to know about the suicide attempt. Get Dr. Corey. Something. She'll be perfectly all right in a day or two, Mr. Kane. And then to go back again to just a bit of a detail about that um, scandal about the movie, uh, Louis B. Mayer actually offered George Schaefer, the president of RKO Radio Pictures, uh, the entire cost of making the film, producing the film, all of the costs involved in the film, if he would destroy the film. Because Mayer, speaking on behalf, or at least so he thought, of Hollywood, felt that this movie would only attract negative attention from Hearst. Due to Hearst pressure, it could not open at Radio City Music Hall, where it was supposed to open. And it never really got a proper release uh, on its first um, outing in American theaters. It wasn't indeed until a 35-millimeter uh, restoration was shown in 1958 that a lot of people ever saw the film for the first time. So that in 1952, when Sight and Sound, the British film magazine, took a poll of the world's critics and directors on the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane was not even on the list. And by 1962, it was number one on the list, and it was also number one on the list in 1972, 82, and 92, and uh, is um, always at or near the top of all lists of great American films, including number one in the American Film Institute's um, a survey uh, of American critics and film people about the great films. Here we have an interesting device. You see the shadow that falls on her face there. The Whatever is used to cast a shadow on something in a shot is known as a kookaloris. Why? I don't know. But uh, it's when you have some kind of a, uh, oh, a net or a web or a frame or something between the light and a face or a human figure, to cast a shadow, uh, then that adds to the atmosphere. And here, in a way, she's kind of in jail, you see. She's sort of behind bars. Uh, she now realizes that although Kane says it's always going to be her way, it's not always going to be her way. Here she is in this ominous castle. It looks a little bit like um, some of the evil castles in Disney pictures. And uh, she's got the crown. She's got the gown. Um, that dress, by the way, conceals the fact that she was pregnant uh, when she started shooting the picture and grew more pregnant as they went along, but they were able to shoot around that so that you never really realized it. Statues, a floor, an archway, a staircase that already existed at RKO, 
these go into the making up of the Great Hall of Xanadu. And uh, Perry Ferguson was quite proud of the fact that there was so much uh, more there in your imagination than there was in real life. I want you to look at that fireplace because, once again, we're going to get this optical illusion um, that takes place when somebody walks into the background of a deep-focus shot. Notice the, um, the figures that are kind of crouching ominously on the right there uh, over her as she does the crossword puzzle. This scene was originally going to be shot in a different room, and to save money, they shot it in the Great Hall. And, of course, the fact that she's doing the crossword in the Great Hall is the making of the scene, as critics have pointed out. Uh, it's such an enormous, lonely, echoing, cavernous space uh, for somebody to engage in such a trivial activity. And now Kane turns around and he walks away, and you'll see how big that fireplace really is. You think of it as an ordinary-sized fireplace, but now, with the human figure there, you realize that it's about 12 feet high, well, maybe 10 feet high, it must be burning tree logs in there. It's a gigantic fireplace, totally out of scale for any human uh, purpose. Um, and so that the whole idea here of the Great Hall is that its majesty uh, overshadows uh, the people in it. Now we have the passage of the seasons here through the various uh, crossword puzzles that she's working on. Charlie comes down the stairs. Walking a little stiffly here, uh, Wells used a back brace in order to make himself seem a little stiffer, and of course he also had, in some shots, uh, a broken angle to contend with, uh, which didn't really operate as a handicap because he wanted to walk like an old man anyway. Hear the echoes here. Now those windows are not really there. That's a matte painting. You do have a couch, you have a chair, you have a candlestick. You have a lot of shadow, and it looks like an enormous room, but it was made at very little cost. Uh, the, the, uh, the Great Hall in Xanadu is one of the great spaces in the movies, but like many of the sets, uh, much of it is there in our imagination. And Wells' radio training helps to create the space here by putting all of the dialogue into an echo chamber kind of feeling. thought we might have a picnic. Back projection there out the back window as they go on a picnic. Uh, this was actually shot at Malibu, and they just uh, took out the whole right side of the picture and substituted the sand and the trees there in a matte painting. Uh, Hearst was famous for trying to cheer up Marion Davies by throwing enormously expensive parties. And uh, the stars would get on trains in Hollywood and go up uh, to a siding near his great castle where they would uh, sleep until breakfast time, wake up, be served breakfast, then be taken in limousines to the vast uh, castle. Look at those birds in the background, by the way. Uh, they look like pterodactyls to me. I think that that back projection is possibly from another RKO picture, maybe one of the Kong pictures, and just put in the background there in order to kind of create the idea that they're in some sort of a jungle. For the birds, I always like those birds when they go past because... They look so strange. Uh, Joe McRae told me that he and his wife, Frances D., were often invited up to San Simeon. They get on the train. They would go up there. Uh, there was always a screening of a movie after dinner, and because Hearst didn't approve of drinking, everybody would sneak out during the movie to get a drink in a bar that uh, 
Marion Davies is set up in another wing of the castle. And uh, McCray told me that as a Christian scientist, he and his wife, they didn't drink. And when the lights came up after the movie, frequently it would only be the two of them uh, and Hearst left in the screening room. He, he was very, he really doted on Marion Davis, though, and he kind of forgave her for, um, uh, for her drinking and for her wild friends, including Herman Makowitz, who, of course, must have been taking notes since so much of this movie is obviously based on firsthand experience of the life at San Simeon, which was transmuted into Xanadu. Hey, whatever you want, just name it and it's uh, Just to go back for a second to that uh, background in the picnic scene when you saw the prehistoric bird flying past, uh, the movie has a very cheerful disregard for uh, logic and continuity. The newsreel at the beginning of the film refers to uh, Xanadu as being on the desert coast of Florida. Well, of course, Florida doesn't have a desert coast. And then, of course, if it does have a desert coast, why does it have a jungle when you look in the background of the picnic scene? And the answer, I think, is nobody cares because each scene kind of has such visual life of its own that you don't ask questions uh, about consistency. Now, here, once again, extremely low ceilings of the little almost doll's house of uh, Susan Alexander's room at Xanadu. Should know that our guests, that everyone here will know about this. Pack your bag you sent for the car. Left you. There's a doll that kind of looks like her right there in the in the lower left. It's as if in this vast pile of masonry, this one little cute room is hers. And uh, he wants her to stay, but she's going to leave. The witness here is uh, who we just saw before the door closed. The butler, played by Paul Stewart, who was a friend of Wells's from Broadway and uh, often played such roles. He was a, um, a very suave and sophisticated guy who was uh, added, added a lot to a lot of different movies. Here, notice how stiffly he's walking, and he looks as old now as he will ever look in the movie, with the skull cap uh, concealing his uh, hair, uh, many layers of makeup, uh, a back brace, um, he wants her to stay. He loves her. Notice she's now in the right-hand witness position on the screen. This is still her flashback. The funny thing about the movie is sometimes you forget what flashback you're in. When I see this movie on television, and I've seen it dozens of times, uh, I can tune in and not be able to remember exactly what's going to happen next because the movie is so circular in its structure and moves in and out of these flashbacks in such a fluid and freeform way that you can't always keep the chronology straight and know exactly where you stand. Uh, this, for example, is her second flashback, and you might have even almost forgotten that. Oh, yes, I can. And there is uh, an interesting shot, and we're going to get an even more interesting shot, all done in an optical printer. All of those doorways, none of them are there. They filmed her in blackness walking away and put the doorways in later. And there's going to be a reverse shot later in the movie showing him standing in a doorway. And once again, all of the doorways in between the camera and the doorway he's in were put in later. Uh, they just shot him as a little square uh, of a human being inside a black uh, background and then uh, put it into the middle of all of these uh, uh, matte effects. All the same, I feel kind of sorry for... The anonymous interviewer, her 
surprised because, after all, in a way, she liked Charlie Kane. She always did like him. You know, she didn't marry him for his money. She didn't know he had any. And now the reverse as we leave the nightclub. And we pass through the sign for the last time in the transition from where she is now to where he ended up. And the fiery, sulfurous flames of the match there lighting Paul Stewart's face from below, the butler. Wells told Paul Stewart, who plays the butler here, to play him as if he's been stealing from Kane for years, stealing caviar and champagne and money, has secret bank accounts, knows where all the bodies are buried. And, of course, he's the person who says that he heard uh, Rosebud. Uh, although it's interesting that when Kane says Rosebud at the beginning of the film, you don't see anybody else in the room, and then the nurse enters. But presumably, if what he's saying is the truth, he must have been there somewhere in the room. I guess you can't get hung up on details like that. Listen to the screech now, this... Uh, this uh, sound transition that's going to come with a cockatoo. And look at the cockatoo's eye. There he rubs out his cigarette on the marble there. He has no respect at all for his employer's mansion. Yeah, but I know how to handle him. Like the time his wife left him. And you can see right through the cockatoo's eye, and it's a mistake. There's no other reason for it than that they made a mistake in the special effects. Now, that's the shot I was talking about. Wells in the door is real. The foreground is real, and everything in the hallway in between was put in later in special effects. The hallway doesn't exist. The doorways don't exist. Uh, the distance between them doesn't exist. They just have that little square of action there, and then everything else was done uh, by the special effects people. Vernon Walker and Linwood Dunn were the two geniuses of the special effects and the visual effects on this picture. And there they created that entire hallway um, out of smoke and mirrors. It doesn't really exist anywhere. Took a little picture of Wells way in the background and combined it with the other details. Now this is a famous scene. It was shot with more than one camera. It shows Wells going berserk. It was inspired uh, by a meeting that he had with his Mercury Theater Associates at Chasen's Restaurant uh, during the preparation uh, for Citizen Kane where he went berserk and he threw a coffee maker at John Hausman, his associate and producer, and uh, he just went wild. And Hausman and Mackiewicz thought, let's put that in the movie. And so Wells knew he only had one shot at it. He only had one take. And during this take, he cut his hand very severely, although um, you can't see it on camera. Uh, but you can see at one point he's kind of protecting his hand after he cuts it, but you can't see it happen. You can see that he just absolutely... Uh, almost frightening himself here with his energy. He said after the scene was finished that he was terrified by his own emotion. And in a second, we're going to see the famous snow globe. And notice that he took his left hand and took it out of sight there, right before he reaches down with his right hand to get the snow globe. That's because he didn't want you to see that the left hand was cut and bleeding. And by now it is. He's heard it already. But he, it wasn't part of the scene, and although he could have left it in, he kind of conceals it. Now, this would be a close-up that was taken later, of course. As he takes this long walk down a series of doorways collected from the back lot at RKO. 
and one of the most mysterious and beautiful haunting sights in all of the cinema, the mirror shot, the many, many, many Charles Foster Canes. Sad, resigned, and looking nothing at all like the 25-year-old man that he was when he played the role. And in that mirror, you see the reflection of all of the doorways that were assembled from the back lot at uh, RKO. And that's what you know about Rosebud? Yeah. I heard him say it that other time, too. So that's the only evidence we have that the butler was there in the death room, even though he is not seen at any point in the movie. He just about had to be in the room, though, because if nobody heard the last words, Rosebud, then the entire premise of the movie would be undermined. But as Pauline Kael points out, uh, Rosebud, after all, is only a device uh, to tell the story and really doesn't have the secret of Citizen Kane, as the movie itself admits. Now, if you study this shot carefully and use the stop-action capacities of the DVD, you can see lots of props that you've seen earlier in the movie. You can recognize some of the statues. You can see the bed that uh, arrived with Kane in the office at the New York Inquirer. Uh, you can see bundles of newspapers that undoubtedly say Declaration of Principles on them. Here you have the um, echoing soundtrack. And we're shooting here actually inside a soundstage. And the people that are way up there on the walls are just on the inside wall of a soundstage. Anybody wants it? Well, at least he brought all this stuff to America. What's that? Another Venus. 25,000 bucks. That's a lot of money to pay for. Uh, they gathered lots of empty boxes and lots of props for this. It was like uh, the biggest jumble sale that Hollywood had ever held. There's the, uh, the Loving Cup. And here again, uh, the deep focus, the cup in the foreground, and look all the way in the background. You can see all the way to the back of the shot. You'll see Alan Ladd again in this scene. He has a couple of uh, lines of, uh, of dialogue. Got a lot of those. And three They're taking inventory. They're kind of making fun of him at the same time. He collected all of this stuff, and what did it amount to? Palaces, paintings, toys, and everything. What would it spell? Charles Foster Kane or Rosebud? How about it, Jerry? <laughs> What's Rosebud? That's what he said. It's a masterpiece, says Kale, but it's a shallow masterpiece, and in a way it is. Not that that makes it any less of a masterpiece. Uh, it's a movie of dazzling surfaces, of great performances, of amazing effects, of incredible transitions, of special effects, of visual delights. A movie that touches all the notes from tragedy to comedy to melodrama to romance. And yet at the same time, it remains, in a way, out of reach, just as Citizen Kane does. Essentially, Citizen Kane set the look of films to come, where the camera can essentially see anything and be anywhere and move anywhere. Lighter cameras, handheld cameras, 16-millimeter cameras, digital cameras are all moving in that direction that Toland uh, was dreaming of, which is to say the point of view is infinitely flexible and it can be adapted to whatever the director or the story requires. Well, miss the train. And he goes up higher and higher and higher with this camera here. And then after this incredible shot, we begin to move in slowly the camera moving on an overhead dolly and here you can start looking for things you may recognize from the movie I mentioned some of them already typewriters 
and lamps and statues and bric-a-brac. This scene never ceases to amaze audiences because you have the feeling of a great revelation. There's the bedhead uh, from the bed at the Enquirer. The old Edison phonograph. Bundles of papers. Old photographs and of course the famous sled and they had to burn the sled over and over again apparently a fire started in the flue at the studio and the fire department came thinking the studio was on fire they got closer and closer and closer to the burning rosebud here by using an optical blow-up to get closer than the physical camera really could get and so we find out the secret which really explains nothing at all Whenever I'm asked what the greatest film of all time is, I always say Citizen Kane. I must confess that I always think that question is a little bit silly because I don't know how you can compare different kinds of films and rank them in a list. People are always wanting to make lists of the ten greatest films in this category or that category, and I always try to resist such lists. But Citizen Kane, to me, is so inventive, so fresh. Every time you see it, so new, I never get tired of it. This last shot, No Trespassing, which kind of mirrors the very first shot of the movie, uh, is a wonderful kind of statement about a man's life. And we must remember a man who was generally considered by people who saw this movie uh, to be William Randolph Hearst, a, a person who was secretive and uh, therefore of great fascination. The final credits are as famous as anything else in the picture. Uh, everybody knew that Wells had this amazing contract, that he had brought his Mercury players with him from, uh, from New York, that he was introducing them in many cases to the screen. And um, so these credits were uh, quite fresh and inventive. And, of course, Wells, who did not have a small ego, kind of had a little fun with his own credit by making his credit as Charles Foster Kane. Uh, Orson Welles, the smallest credit among all of the actors. There was a certain amount of tension about the shared screenplay credit. Uh, Welles wanted solo credit for writing the movie, and Herman Mankiewicz, uh, who knew that the movie was going to be an enormous hit, insisted on getting co-credit, even though under the contract that he had signed with Welles, Welles could take credit for the screenplay. Kale argues in her book that the screenplay is basically by Mankiewicz. Other critics have said it's a collaboration, but Mankiewicz certainly made uh, a, a crucial and important uh, contribution to it. Now, there's Orson Welles all the way down there at the bottom. On the other hand, Welles was very generous in sharing his director's credit card with Greg Toland. It was the only time that a cinematographer and a director were on the same card, and that indicated his gratitude to Toland for the enormous contribution he made to the very look and tone and mood of the picture. So uh, there were two dual credits coming up here. One caused uh, Wells to cringe, the other uh, caused uh, Toland, I suppose, to smile. And 
This was what they won the Oscar for. The only Oscar that Orson Welles won for Citizen Kane was for original screenplay, and he had to share it with Mankiewicz. But there, that credit is heartfelt because Tolan was truly his collaborator in creating this magnificent motion picture. I'm Roger Ebert. I hope you've enjoyed seeing Citizen Kane.